0: Well, as we have been studying the biblical doctrine of salvation and how the triune God works in perfect harmony to save sinners who are dead in sin and enslaved to Satan and marching blindly towards everlasting ruin and misery. We come this morning to consider the biblical doctrine of irresistible grace or the I in the acrostic tulip. We have considered the T, total depravity. We have thought through the U, unconditional election, and our souls have found solace in the sweetness of the L, limited atonement, or perhaps the title that better captures the meaning of this doctrine, particular redemption, or as John MacArthur calls it, actual atonement. We saw last time that this system of theology isn't something that was initially forced upon or imposed upon the biblical text by devious men who wanted to see the church divided, who wanted to split doctrinal hairs. But rather these doctrines, these teachings, this system of theology that relates to the salvation of sinners is forced and imposed upon us by the biblical text we must wrestle with what the text says there are a number of reasons why so many professing christians absolutely despise these teachings one of them being that they still have high views of man what he is and what he's actually capable of man is a sinner yes but he's still able to turn to god and seek god with his own Strength, with a little bit of help from the Holy Spirit, they refuse to accept passages like John 6 and verse 44, which tells us that no one is able to come to Christ and believe in him apart from the effectual drawing of the Father. They can't accept passages like Romans chapter 8 and verse 7, which tells us that unregenerate human beings are absolutely cannot submit themselves to the law of God, which is nothing more than the revelation of his will for human beings. Human beings are utterly unable to submit to God's law. There's an absolute inability there that many refuse to accept. Verse eight of Romans chapter eight drives the nail even deeper by declaring that unregenerate human beings Absolutely cannot please God. There's no way. That speaks to man's moral inability. Cannot please God. And yet, professing Christians don't want to hear about man's moral inability. They're in lockstep with the world that boasts about human beings being capable of doing anything they want. And they're threatened by the truth that there is nothing that an unregenerate person can do to please the living God. Is faith in Christ pleasing to God? Does repentance toward God please God? Without question. But can the natural man by his allegedly free will conjure up A faith that is pleasing to God or a repentance that is pleasing in his sight. According to Paul, not while he remains in the state known as the flesh. It's impossible. A change of realms is necessary. A change of realms. The state of the individual needs to be changed from being, quote, in the flesh to being, quote, in the spirit. And how does this happen? How does a sinner go from being in the realm of the flesh to being in the realm of the spirit where pleasing God is absolutely possible? How does he go from being in the realm of the flesh where it's impossible to please God to being in the realm of the spirit where pleasing God is finally possible? How does a sinner transfer realms from being in the realm of the flesh to the realm of the spirit Listen to Jesus on the matter. Turn with me in your Bible to John chapter three. John chapter three. I want to encourage you this morning to stretch those fingers because you're going to be using them a lot this morning. Get those fingers ready. John chapter three, beginning in verse three, Jesus answered Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, I'm sorry, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, He cannot enter the kingdom of God. And now listen carefully to Jesus on how a sinner transfers from the realm of the flesh to the realm of the spirit. John three and verse six, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. There it is. So when Paul says in Romans chapter eight, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, and then immediately follows by telling the Christians in Rome, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, how did they transfer from the realm of the flesh to the realm of the spirit? According to Jesus. This isn't a trick question, nor is this rocket science or calculus or as some Christians claim, too deep for us to fathom in this life. It's not difficult at all. It might be difficult for our pride to swallow, but it's not difficult for our minds to comprehend. Jesus clearly says here that a sinner transfers from the realm of the flesh, where he or she is unable to please God, to the realm of the spirit, whenever he or she is born again. Born from above born of the spirit of God. So who brings about the new birth and who transfers sinners from the realm of the flesh to the realm of the spirit? Again, this isn't a trick question. Who brings about the new birth that brings an individual into the realm of the spirit? It's the spirit of God who like the wind blows where he wishes, when he wishes and as he wishes. He's, he's, well, look at verse eight. The wind blows where it wishes, Jesus says. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. He doesn't just automatically change the subject and become like a Chuck DeBroder in El Paso who's talking about the weather. Meteorologist, no. He's giving you an illustration of how the new birth works. And he traces the source of the new birth to the sovereign spirit who, like the wind, blows where he wishes, when he pleases, and as he pleases. The spirit's work of regeneration is explained by an illustration taken from the behavior of the wind. I love this simplicity. Even a child that even a child knows that no one on earth can direct the wind. No one can direct the wind. No one can command the wind. I want you to think about the wind and its relation to the Holy Spirit's work in regenerating sinners for a moment. Let me give you five similarities between the wind and the Spirit's work in regeneration. Number one, the wind is independent. It's sovereign in its action and altogether beyond man's ability to control it or coerce it. So it is with the Spirit's work in regeneration. He works independently, apart from our cooperation, apart from our help. He works by himself to bring about the new birth. He moves upon the sinner's dead spirit when he pleases and as he pleases, making them alive in Christ. Secondly, the wind is irresistible. You can't stop the wind. Strong winds and tornadoes are known to sweep everything away everything that lies in their path. Well, so it is with the Spirit's work in regeneration. When he comes upon dead sinners in the fullness of his power and in the fullness of his grace, he humbles the sinner's pride. He frees the sinner's will. He opens the sinner's eyes and he floods the sinner's heart with the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You might resist at first, Or even for years, but it's his will that will ultimately prevail in the end. Thirdly, the wind is irregular. Sometimes it moves as a soft and gentle breeze. Other times it sweeps away everything in its path. And so it is with the Spirit's work in regeneration. When he moves upon some, it's a gentle gust A gentle breeze. That's how it was for me. My conversion when I was 17, 18 years old. It was was not a tornado that rushed in and just demolished my entire worldview. It was just like one second I was dead and next second I'm alive. It's a gentle breeze. One second the sinner is dead in sin and dead to God and then the next they're alive to God and fascinated with his all satisfying glory. But others... When the spirit moves upon them, he comes like a tornado, shaking up absolutely everything in their lives that can be shaken, turning their world upside down and blowing them violently and loudly out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. So whether a gentle breeze or a devastating tornado, the result in both cases is regeneration or newness of life. What was it for you? And it doesn't matter. You ended up new, renewed, born again. Fourthly, unlike most things in nature, the wind is invisible and inscrutable. You can't see where it comes from or where it's going. You can't see it at all. And so it is with the spirit's work of regeneration. Although his presence is invisible to us, We can certainly see the effects of his life giving power whenever a sinner out of a conviction over sin and a desperate desire to be freed from sin's power cries out in faith to the son of David, who alone can save and show mercy to sinners. When the spirit blows with the life of Christ, the sinner bows to the lordship of Christ. Lastly, the wind is indispensable indispensable. Whenever plants are pushed by the wind, they release a hormone that stimulates the growth of supporting cells. The wind allows us to get oxygen. It reduces carbon and moves rain clouds that water the earth. The wind increases turbulence in the atmosphere that in turn increases the supply of carbon dioxide to plants, resulting in increased photosynthesis rates Without the wind, our world as we know it would absolutely wither away. Can you imagine? We walked into somewhere the other day and I asked one of the boys, can you imagine a world without wind? Some of us in the Southwest would probably appreciate that for a day or two, right? <laughs> Especially in March and April. But imagine a world that's just stale. No breeze, no wind. It wouldn't survive very long. It's indispensable Well, so it is with the Spirit's work in regeneration. If He does not move, if He does not blow upon dead sinners, they will remain lifeless and they will die in their sins. They will die. Those who were born again by the power of the Spirit know that they're alive in Christ and enjoy the evidences of being alive in Christ. But as far as how the Spirit imparts life to our dead spirits, sheds light upon our darkened minds, liberates our enchained wills, replaces our stony hearts, and opens our eyes to look savingly upon the all-sufficiency of Christ is a mystery known to God and God alone. The one thing we do know is that when it comes to regeneration, when it comes to being born again into the realm of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit does all the work by himself by himself he works independently just like the wind and so when we speak of irresistible grace we are speaking about the sovereign work of god the holy spirit in bringing about new life in all those who have been chosen by the father and ransomed by the son to be crystal clear up front this morning the doctrine of irresistible grace states that the holy spirit never fails to bring about the new birth in all those whom he personally calls to Jesus Christ. Let me give you that definition again. Irresistible grace states that the Holy Spirit never fails to bring about the new birth in all those whom he personally calls to Jesus Christ. The work of election, unconditional election, is ascribed to God the Father. Though, as we have seen in our studies All the persons of the Trinity are involved in all that God does, but it's ascribed to the Father. The work of redemption and atonement is ascribed to God the Son. Well, the work of effectual calling and regeneration is ascribed to God the Holy Spirit. That's one of the reasons I appreciate the doctrines of grace, is that you have five points. The first point relating to man in his helpless, hopeless, hell-bound state. Secondly, you have the work of the Father. You have the work of the Son, thirdly. Then you have the work of the Holy Spirit in irresistible grace. And in the end, as man goes through that conveyor belt of the Trinity, he ends up on the other side as a persevering saint who makes it to the end. That's what the doctrines of grace essentially are. The work of the triune God in accomplishing and applying our salvation. And it can't be emphasized enough. That although various aspects of our salvation can be ascribed to certain members of the Trinity, as I mentioned, the Father choosing, the Son redeeming, and the Spirit regenerating, they nevertheless work in perfect harmony with one another and share the exact same will and saving purpose. That's crucial. That's why I've subtitled this series of sermons, The Saving Work of the Triune God. The Saving Work of the Triune God. The doctrines of grace, or the five points of Calvinism, are about the saving work of our triune God. The first point, total depravity, focuses on man as dead in sin, in bondage to Satan, and totally incapable of saving himself or even preparing himself for salvation. The second point, unconditional election, focuses on the very first act that sets our salvation into motion God the Father's choosing to save specific sinners and then entrusting them to the son who would come and redeem them the third point limited atonement or particular redemption or actual atonement draws our attention to god the son and the fact that he came and he laid down his life as a ransom that would actually release from captivity all those and only those whom the father chose and gave to him Actual atonement, not hypothetical possible atonement. If your faith gives it its power, no. It wasn't designed to provide salvation for all without exception. It was designed by God to actually atone for the sins of the elect. It was an actual atonement, not a hypothetical atonement. And of course, now the fourth point this morning, irresistible grace focuses primarily though not exclusively, on the regenerating work of God, the Holy Spirit, that he accomplishes without fail in all those and only those whom the Father chose and the Son paid for. Other names for irresistible grace are effectual grace, effectual calling, which is the one I prefer, effectual calling, or as the famous commentator Matthew Henry called it, victorious grace simply put the doctrine of irresistible grace for those of you who just want it simple means that when god the holy spirit goes after you he comes back with you that's why i think the best phrase that captures what we're saying here even better than irresistible grace is effectual calling effectual calling effectual being defined as successful in producing a desired or intended result effectual calling in the new testament we find two kinds of calling don't we there's a general call that goes out to all people it's the general call of the gospel the call to repent the call to believe the gospel it's the call to seek the lord while he may be found to call upon his name before it's too late that's the general call of the gospel that we are called to throw out there in the great commission the general call to turn to the lord jesus christ jesus spoke of this general call in the parable of the wedding feast when he said that many are called but few are chosen Matthew twenty two fourteen, Many are called outwardly, externally in a general sense, but of all those who are called in this manner, few of them are actually chosen by God. Few are actually the elect. But the New Testament doesn't just speak of a general call, does it? It speaks of a special call. It actually speaks more about an inner call, an effectual call, an operative call, a spiritual and special call. It's not the type of call that we're accustomed to in our world. Parents, we call our children to come to the dinner table and the child can either come or delay or choose to continue playing. We call people on the phone and they might pick up or they might hit the button that takes it automatically to voicemail. We call people all the time. This inward effectual call, however, that comes from God, isn't a call that can be ignored. It's not a call that can be ignored, as we're going to see with Paul the Apostle. In fact, this call is more of a divine summons. It's even more powerful than what a court calls a, a subpoena. When a court summons or subpoenas a person to appear in court. Because while that call comes with the authority of the court, a person can still ignore this call in the end. The inward, effectual call of God, however, is one that cannot be spurned and cannot be ignored. When he summons an individual, when he subpoenas a person to appear in his court, that person comes. That person comes. It's an effectual call, a call that successfully produces God's intended result. Unfortunately, we don't use language like this today. We don't speak much of calling the call, the effectual call. But we ought to, because it's biblical language. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter eight this morning. Romans chapter eight, our first section. We have turned to a num- we have turned to Romans 8 a number of times in this series. And for a number of different reasons. We've turned to Romans 8 and talking about the depravity of man. Romans 8 to talk about God's unconditional, gracious election of sinners. And now we're turning it again as we consider effectual calling or irresistible grace. Romans 8, and let's look again at verse 28. Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Those who love God, those for whom all things work together for good are called according to God's purpose. God had a purpose. And from what we've been studying, this purpose is eternal. This purpose is Christocentric. And this purpose is gracious. Romans 9 calls it God's purpose of election. And according to this gracious purpose of election, God calls his elect. Now look at verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified notice the effectiveness of this call or as the puritans called it the efficacy of this call notice it in the text those whom god calls he also justifies paul does not say that some whom god calls he ends up justifying He presents this golden chain of salvation as one that is entirely unbreakable. It can't be broken. Those whom God has predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So according to Paul here, to be called by God in the sense of Romans 8.30 guarantees, guarantees that the call will result in, in justification, being declared righteous in God's sight, and it also will result in glorification, being transformed into the likeness of Christ. In other words, if God calls you, if the living God calls you in this particular sense, he saves you. He saves you. You end up justified and you will end up glorified. This is an effectual call by God that results in salvation every single time. It's an effectual call. So if like Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. How do we know which ones are chosen? Well, according to Romans 8 30, those who are chosen are those who end up justified and eventually glorified. Why? Because they've been called by God. Not merely in the general sense, but in the inward, special, effectual sense. They are summoned to his court where he forgives them, justifies them, adopts them, and seals them with his own spirit until the day of redemption. You, upon your conversion, Christian, were subpoenaed to his court where you stood before him and he then clothed you in his righteousness, sealed you with his spirit, And adopted you into his family. That's what this call involves every single time. Without fail. And so I ask you, how often do you hear this language today within Christian circles? Language about God's call. God's effectual saving operative call. I mean, we hear more about God's invitation, don't we? Invitation language. We hear a lot about God inviting sinners to his kingdom. We hear a lot about God offering sinners eternal life. And why is this? Why do we hear more about the invitational stuff and the offer stuff versus the effectual call stuff, the divine summons material? Why is this? Well, I'm no prophet, but I would say that the reason we hear more today about God inviting sinners and offering sinners eternal life than we do god effectually calling sinners to himself where they end up saved is because again many christians have a low view of sin and a high view of man and what he's capable of again this is as we have been looking at this is the essence of provisionism anything you find on soteriology101.com is provisionism God doesn't actually effectively call you. He invites you. He offers you eternal life. To quote directly from the acrostic, you know, because the Armenians have their five points. The Calvinists have their five points. Well, they wanted their points. And so they have the acrostic. Instead of tulip, it's called provide. Leighton Flowers promotes this. And to quote directly from the acrostic, All we're talking about is an open door, quote, the divine provision offered impartially to all for anyone to enter through faith for whosoever may come to his open arms. End quote. Do you see what this man has done? He's concluded that sinners don't need a divine, effectual, powerful summons to appear before the living God where he then justifies the man. No, all man needs is an open door. All man needs is an offer. All man needs is an invitation and the man can do the rest. To be fair, Flowers goes on one more step in his acrostic and says that in addition to God providing an open door, he also provides, quote, illuminating grace. Not to be confused with regenerating grace, or heart-replacing grace or mind-renewing grace or life-imparting grace? No, the grace that the Arminians hold forth and the grace that the flower Indians and provisionism holds forth is simply illuminating grace, defined as, quote, the divine provision offered sufficiently to all and provides clearly revealed truth so that all can know and respond in faith. I read it again. It's the divine provision offered sufficiently to all and provides clearly revealed truth so that all can know and respond in faith. Close quote. Mark down that language. That the farthest God goes in his involvement in salvation is that he provides, number one, an open door that God offers impartially to all. And number two, illuminating grace that provides clearly revealed truth so that the sinner can make an informed decision. That's it. Here's the open door. And let me just make it as plain as possible so that you can make your own decision to either follow Jesus or not follow him. That's as far as God goes. He opens the door and then he clears the clutter so that you can understand. Well, The Bible does not have such high views of man that would suggest that all he needs is an open door and a clear understanding of the gospel so that he can do the rest. The truth of the matter is that when it comes to man, as the Bible describes him, you can set an open door before him for a billion years and he will not seek God. That's who we are. That's what man is. You can send the Holy Spirit on a daily basis, on an hourly basis to clear the clutter and the confusion in a sinner's thinking so that he or she can make an informed decision to either follow Jesus or not follow Jesus. And they still will not repent or believe in him. Why? Because so long as they remain in the realm of the flesh, they will continue to be dead to God and alive to sin. Romans six eleven. They will continue to be hostile to God and at enmity with God. Romans eight seven. They will continue in their total inability to do anything pleasing to God. Romans chapter eight and verse eight. They will continue to be under the power of Satan. First John five twenty. Five nineteen. Sorry. They will continue to love agapeo strong love the darkness and hate the light. As long as man remains in the realm of the flesh, he will continue to hate the light and love the darkness. As long as sinners remain in the realm of the flesh, you can provide all the illuminating grace you want. But as Paul declared in 1 Corinthians 2, 14, the natural person, the person in the realm of the flesh does not accept, welcome, or receive the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him. To use another translation in the Greek, they, the things of the Spirit of God, the content of the gospel, is stupid to the natural man. Foolishness. And he is not able, there's the word, he is not able to understand the things of the Spirit of God because these things are spiritually discerned. Spiritually discerned. But, if that sinner transfers from the realm of the flesh to the realm of the spirit, he will accept and he will welcome and he will receive and he will treasure the truth of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And how does that transfer of realms take place again? How does a sinner go from being in the realm of the flesh to being in the realm of the spirit? According to John chapter three, regeneration, the new birth, That which is born of the flesh is flesh and will always be flesh. But that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Contrary to Arminian thinking and contrary to provisionist teaching, man does not need an open door set before him. He needs an open heart within him. He needs an open heart. And who opens the heart? Because some will take Revelation 3, verse 20 completely out of context and say, well, look here, Jesus is standing and knocking at the door of the sinner's heart, waiting for the sinner to open the door to him, not realizing that Jesus is addressing a church that had lost its way. It's God who opens the hearts of sinners. Turn to Acts 16 with me. Acts 16. We're gonna speed this up a little bit. Acts chapter 16. Let your eyes fall down to verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and there and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we suppose where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, her and her household, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay And she prevailed upon us. She insisted that she serve us. So the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And it resulted in what? Her conversion to Christ and her subsequent baptism in identifying with Christ and his church. But someone might say, as I've heard the argument, well, the text says here that she was already a worshiper of God. And that's why God opened her heart. But in the book of Acts, whenever Luke mentions the worshipers of God or the God-fearers, he's not talking about people who were already saved. These were phrases that described Gentiles who embraced Israel's faith and the laws, moral norms. But these people weren't fully converted to Judaism with respect to the ceremonial or dietary laws. And so to use this argument against the doctrine of effectual calling is actually a self-defeating reality because the argument can be turned around and should be turned around in reasoning like this. If Lydia, who from our perspective was closer to the kingdom of God than an outwardly flagrant Pontius Pilate of her day, if she still needed to have her heart opened by God to pay attention and respond to the gospel, how much more the Pontius Pilate's in this world. How much more the flagrant Barabbas is in this world who have no knowledge of God. And even that argument has flaws, because in terms of which lost sinners are closer to the kingdom of God than others, we know that all sinners are dead. It's not a matter of distance. It's a matter of deadness. You look at two corpses in the grave of sin and you ask, well, which one's closer to the kingdom? It makes no sense because both are dead. The Lydia's of this world are dead in sin, but so are the King Herod's. So are the Pontius Pilate's. Both are dead. All are in need of having their hearts opened. All are in need of effectual calling. All are in need of the new birth and regeneration that can only come from the sovereign spirit of God who, like the wind, blows where he wishes. This is what the Bible means by called. Called. It's a divine summons that always accomplishes God's saving intentions. Turn to Romans 1. We've seen Paul's teaching on this call in Romans 8. Well, let's start off at Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Called to be an apostle. It's the same word. I want to ask you, if you've read the account of Paul, his conversion on the Damascus road, was that a call that he could ignore? (laughs) The almighty, omnipotent, risen, all-glorious Christ appearing to this man on the road to Damascus, calling him to be an ambassador to go represent him before kings and magistrates. And Paul says, nah. Do you remember the Damascus Road story? Let me just read it to you. Summarized in Acts 26 and verse 12. Paul says, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, "Who are you, Lord?" And the Lord said, "I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting." Paul was called, effectually called to be an apostle. But you might say, "Ah, oh, no, he is called to apostleship." In that same instance, was he not called to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, as he would go on later in Galatians to say that Christ? called him to his grace not just to the apostolic office look down to verse 6 in romans 1 speaking of the church in rome including you who are called to belong to jesus christ to all those in rome who are loved by god and called to be saints the same calling resulted in them being saints turn to first corinthians chapter 1 we find the same truth paul called by the will of God to be an apostle. It's an effectual call that brought about God's intended results. Called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ both their Lord and ours. Why do we call upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Because we ourselves have been called by God to be saints in the church of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, look down with me. Go down. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see that? There's a general call in the preaching of Christ crucified. But to those who are effectually called, Christ appears to them as the very power of God and the wisdom of God, and they follow him. That's the effectual call upon God's elect. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 17, verse 14, you don't have to turn here. It tells us this title for the church. It says, they will make war on the lamb, these enemies of the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And listen to how he defines the church. Those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Can you imagine if all we needed was an open door, an invitation? We might reword that to say, all those with the lamb in this triumphant picture at the end of the book are invited, the ones that God set the open door before and they walked in it. No, friends, they are called and chosen and faithful. The Bible does speak in invitational language. Revelation 19, verse nine says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb, but that doesn't nullify the reality and the necessity of an inward effectual call god invites yes but he does more than invite and that's the point this morning we are invited yes an open door is set before us yes but left to ourselves we would never come hence the need for this inward call this effectual call that summons us to appear before the court of heaven where he saves us first corinthians chapter one look at verse nine. First corinthians 1 9 god is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. You were summoned to enjoy fellowship with the son of God. Galatians chapter one, two books later. Galatians chapter one, verse six, Paul says, I am astonished that you Galatians are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. And when Paul down in verse 14 of Galatians one recalls his past in judaism he says and i was advancing in judaism beyond many of my own age among my people so extremely zealous was i for the traditions of my fathers but when he who had set me apart before i was born it's the purpose of election by the way and who called me by his grace whom he predestined he what he called paul says when he who had set me apart before i was born there's the Election, there's a predestination. And who called me by his grace, he was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Galatians chapter five, verse 13, you were called to freedom. You were called, summoned to a life of freedom from sin and Satan's bondage. It wasn't a mere invitation. You were summoned to freedom. You were summoned to the son who sets his people free. Ephesians chapter four, look at verse one. Ephesians chapter four, verse one. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all who is over all and through all and in all god called you to this one faith he called you to this one lord by this one spirit into this one body and you came and here you are ephesians and here you are las cruces and here you are church of jesus christ worldwide in all the ages second thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13 crucial passage listen to this But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved, to be saved. God chose you to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and through belief in the truth. God chose to set you apart by the Holy Spirit and God chose you to believe the truth. Why did you believe the truth? Because God chose you to believe the truth. And notice what verse 14 says. To this, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not just an invitation. This is a divine, powerful summons to come and obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 12, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. You were called to eternal life. I will have you turn here. Second Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy one, nine. Second Timothy chapter one, notice verse nine. Speaking of God who saved us and called us. You see the terms that are used synonymously here? Calling is saving. He saved you by calling you. It doesn't say he called you, you responded, and then he saved you. No, that's not what he says. He says, who saved us and called us. That calling was a saving call. Called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Romans chapter eight, verse 30 is all over the place. Those whom he predestined, those who were given grace before the ages began were what? Eventually, they were called into the fellowship of God's son. They were called according to the purpose of election. And lastly, 1 Peter 2.9, well-known passage. But you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous Light, God called you out of darkness. He brought you out. You were once children of darkness, but now, Paul says, you are light in the Lord. How did that happen? He summoned you out. He transferred you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, forgiveness of our trespasses. So the father calls us and we come. The son, the good shepherd, calls his elect sheep and they hear his voice. John 10 verse three to the good shepherd. The gatekeeper opens the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And he going a little bit further down verse 14 of John 10. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and listen to this. Is this a mere invitation or is this an effectual call? And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Going a little bit further, chapter 10 and verse 25. Jesus answered them, the Pharisees, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name, bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. It's an effectual call, an operative call. God calls us and we follow. God calls us and then he goes, and then he gives us new hearts. This is the promise of the new covenant. Take Ezekiel eleven nineteen for example. And I, speaking of God in the new covenant, will give them one heart and a new spirit. I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. And they may walk, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people. Later on in Ezekiel 36, same promise. I will give them a new heart and a new spirit. I'll put my spirit within them that they might walk in my ways. God calls, he gives us ears to hear. God calls, he gives us hearts to hear. God calls and he gives us faith. John 3, 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. Philippians 1, 29, it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only suffer for him, but that you might believe in him. Did you catch that? It's been granted to you, church in Philippi, to believe in Christ. It's been granted to you, just like John 6, 64 and 65 talk about. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter writes to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing, even with that of the apostles. They've obtained faith. They've received it as a gift. Faith is a gift. In Acts chapter 18, verse 27, luke talks about those who through grace believed it's a gift faith is a gift ephesians 2 chapter chapter 2 verse 8 for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing or in the original this is not of yourselves this salvation this faith through which you've been saved this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. So he calls and he gives us saving faith. He calls and he, furthermore, he gives us repentance. He gives us repentance, grants us new thinking, a change of mind. Acts 5, 31, God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Acts 11, verse 18, when it comes to the Gentiles, To the Gentiles, also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And you might say, okay, as a whole, sure, God's allowed the Gentiles to repent. He's giving repentance to Israel as a whole. But what about on the individual level? What about individual Gentiles? Well, that's what's happening in Acts 11 at the house. Individual people are repenting. God doesn't save groups. He saves sinners. He saves individuals. And that's what's happening. Second Timothy chapter two, verse 25. Speaking of an elder, he should correct his opponents with gentleness. And the reason God may perhaps grant these enemies of the gospel repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. God grants a sinner repentance. They then come to a knowledge of the truth. They come to their senses and they escape the clutches of Satan. And all this comes from God. There was a time when Jesus, in Luke chapter 10, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit before the Father. And he said, I thank you, Father Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things. Everything has been preaching from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. He likened, to his, he likened his followers to little children on a number of occasions. Thank you, Father, that you've, revealed, you've hidden these things from the wise of this world, the noble, but you've revealed them to little children. Peter and James and John, Mary's, Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And listen, or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Friends, the new birth comes from God. And listen, it results in saving faith. The new birth comes from God and it results in saving faith. It produces saving faith, not the other way around. We have a book by, some, by a well-known evangelist, especially in the mid-1900s, about how to be born again how to be born again. And the argument is essentially that you believe in Christ and then you're born again. The friends the scriptures teach otherwise. It's the other way around. Regeneration comes before faith. And I want you to see this. Go to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Regeneration comes before faith. The new birth comes before faith. And I want you to understand that there's not a huge lag time between the new birth and the exercising of saving faith. In other words, there's no one outside or in this room that's born again, but doesn't believe in Jesus. It's not like, well, I was born again, and I'm waiting for the fruit of regeneration to appear when I believe in Jesus. That's not how this works. That's not how this happens. It's, as one preacher likened it, it's like the striking of a match. It's the, There's a striking of the match, and then it turns into fire it's that fast the striking of the match is regeneration the inflaming the engulfing of the match is saving faith it happens in an instant but the order is so so important regeneration comes before saving faith look at first john chapter 5 and verse 1 everyone who believes that jesus is the christ has been born of god This was the entire purpose of John's gospel, right? John 20. I'm writing so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that in believing, you might have life in his name. Same phrase. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. When he says everyone who believes, mark it down, that is a present active verb in the Greek. Everyone who goes on in the present tense, actively believing and treasuring Christ is born of God. Perfect tense, perfect passive verb. Why do people go on believing in Jesus? Why do people believe in him at all? Because they have been perfect passive verb. They have been born of God. And if that's not convincing enough, you might say, ah, oh, you're, 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 you're twisting words here. You're splitting hairs here. I don't know that regeneration comes before faith. Again, I'm showing you here in 1 John 5, 1 that this active faith is the result of someone being born of God. Perfect tense, meaning a completed past action that has ongoing results in the present and in the future. So you might say, well, I think you're, I think you're taking this a little bit too far. Well, let's go and let's see John's thought, John's logic. Go to 1 John chapter 2, verse 29, where we see this similar language here. 1 John chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Same pattern, right? Instead of those who believe in Jesus have been born of God, he says, those who practice righteousness have been born of him. And so I ask you the question, what comes first? You practicing righteousness or you being born again? The argument of John here is that righteousness is the result of regeneration. Otherwise it'd be based upon our works. Look, God, I'm walking in righteousness Oh, God says, oh, you deserve to be born again. Zap, and you're born again. That's not how it works. Ch- turn to chapter three, verse nine. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So what happens first? Ceasing from sin and then being born again? Or being born again and being freed from a life of sin? You answer the question. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So what's the order here? You love God. And then you're born of God or are you born of God? And consequently, because of that, you begin to love God and love the church of God. That's the order. First John chapter five, look at verse four. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So what happens first? You overcome the world and God rewards you with the new birth? Or are you born again and then enter into a state of overcoming the world by what? Your faith. So what comes first? According to John, the new birth or faith? It's the new birth. Even as the new birth results in righteousness, righteous living, the new birth results in Repentance, not going on in sin any longer. The new birth brings about love for God and love for fellow believers. The new birth enables someone to overcome the world. But all, when it comes to 1 John 5, 1, the the order is reversed now. It's we believe and then we're born again. That's not John's logic here. The new birth occurs producing, saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ Christ. And someone might say, well, here we are as we come to a close. I don't know about this irresistible grace. I mean, Acts chapter seven, verse 51 says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. There it is. There's proof right there that you can resist the Holy Spirit. you've misunderstood what we're saying, if that's your conclusion, we're saying that we will always and have many times before our conversion Resisted the holy spirit we do all we're saying in the doctrine of effectual calling is that when god says enough is enough we stop resisting and we freely offer ourselves to god in the day of his power as psalm 110 says and someone might say well this violates our wills this violates free will doesn't it we're saying no, it takes away the unwilling part of our will so that we freely come to Christ with these new hearts. I want to end with an illustration, ironically, from the Old Testament. And so if you would turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter thirty. We'll end here. Second Chronicles chapter thirty. Thirty. Second Chronicles thirty. It's amazing how even in the Old Testament, God illustrates how this happens, how this works. And what we're going to see now is a faint picture of what we see now happening in the Great Commission. We have an Old Testament picture of the Great Commission, in a sense. Look at Second Chronicles chapter 30. We're just going to read the first 12 verses. Hezekiah sent to all Israel. He was the king and Judah and wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. For the king and his princes and all the assembly in Jerusalem had taken counsel to keep the Passover in the second month. For they could not keep it at that time because the priests had not consecrated themselves in sufficient number, nor had the people assembled in Jerusalem. So you have Israel in a state of darkness. They're not wanting to come and celebrate the Lord. They're not wanting to come to the feasts. They're not wanting to come to the the temple. They don't want to. Verse four. And the plan seemed right to the king and all the assembly. And so they decreed to make a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba to Dan, that the people should come and keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel at Jerusalem, for they had not kept it as often as prescribed. So couriers went out throughout all Israel. They scattered and all Judah with letters from the king and his princes as the king had commanded saying, "O people of Israel, return to the Lord. That was the issue. They had turned away from him. Return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithless to the Lord God of their fathers, so that he made them a desolation as you see. Do not be now stiff necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and come to his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever and serve the Lord your God, that his fierce anger may turn away from you. Friends, what is this? This is a call to repentance. This is a call to return to the Lord. Verse 9, for if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord, your God, is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. And now notice the conclusion. So the couriers went from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh and as far as Zebulun, but they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. However, some men of Asher, of Manasseh and of Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. And here it is. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart. To do what the king and the priests commanded by the word of the Lord. Do you see this? That word also in verse 12 is so key. And yes, it is there in the Hebrew. The hand of God was also on Judah. Also meaning what? As it was on those in verse 11. Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun. The hand of God was on all them. And what was the byproduct of that? Self-humbling, obedience. Why? Because God had first given them one heart to do what was being commanded. Do you see it? Here's a faint Old Testament picture of the Great Commission. We are sent out into the world with a proclamation from heaven. That Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ has ascended to the right hand of power and he will return to judge the living and the dead. And we go out and we face what they faced, mockery and scorn and laughter, persecution. But there are people out there on whom the hand of the Lord will fall and he will give them one heart that they repent and believe and treasure the Lord Jesus Christ, even as we see here in 2 Chronicles chapter 30. Why did you humble yourself initially and call upon the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation? Because God gave you one heart to do that. He caused you to be born again, and as a result of that, you trusted in and you treasured the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only reason you gave yourself over to the message of reconciliation. God always grants what he commands. He calls us to follow. He calls us to repent. He calls us to trust in Christ. And then he gives us the heart and the new birth and the new mind and the power to obey that call. Friends, have you experienced this call that we are talking about this morning? Have you experienced this effectual call? Or is the gospel still folly to you? Is the message of a crucified savior outside of Jerusalem still stupid to you foolishness to you well if you're called the day will come if you're chosen the day will come when you will look upon this crucified man who's crucified in weakness and you will see omniscient omnipotent power to those who are called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You will look at the cross and you will say, what wisdom has been provided? What wisdom in devising a plan that would save sinners from the wrath of God by the love of God in a way that's consistent with the righteousness of God in a way that never once compromises the righteousness of God for the glory of God? What wisdom? Friends, if you heard today and you're not a Christian, God calls you. To turn from your ways and to turn to him, to trust in his Son he calls you to his, his own eternal glory in Christ. a common charge regarding this doctrine is that this makes God to be a divine rapist who violates the wills of sinners, one who Ravages and takes and harms. I want you to listen to this as we conclude. A brother who is passed on, a guy by the name of Norman Geisler, made the accusation that the reformed view of irresistible grace makes God out to be a divine rapist a divine rapist who takes and kurt daniel writes nothing could be further from the truth because in forcible rape the rapist acts illegally out of selfish lust often with anger or hatred or sometimes with deception or threats and not out of love or concern for the well-being of the victim the victim is harmed shamed reacts with fear and anything but love for her attacker by contrast In irresistible grace, God works legally, lovingly, honestly, and generously with everlasting concern for the well-being of the elect sinner who responds gratefully, submissively, lovingly, and joyfully. Effectual grace is not a shameful disgrace, but a true spiritual romance. William Greenhill, the Puritan, put it like this, God sweetens their wills and overcomes them with kindness and truth god does not force a man's will but he sweetly and lovingly takes away the unwilling part of his will the corruption of his will praise god that he has called us to his own eternal glory in christ